Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. This week marks the beginning of our Advent series titled, The True Meaning of Christmas. Let's join Senior Pastor Rob O'Neill now for the first message in his series called, God So Loved the World. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that in Christmas you came to us in Jesus Christ. God, we seek to know what that means, what that means to us. And so we ask you, dear God, would you show us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So how do we get to the true meaning of Christmas? How the Grinch Stole Christmas seeks to paint a a vision, if you will, of what the true meaning of Christmas looks like. In How the Grinch Stole Christmas, we start with the Who's of Whoville, decorating ecstatically and exuberantly for Christmas. Everything's going great. But up on the mountain, the Grinch is not amused by all the noise and all the commotion down below in Whoville. He's very angry about it. And so he comes up with a plan. On Christmas Eve, the Grinch plans to sneak into Whoville and steal their decorations, their packages, and their food. And he does exactly that. But then the next morning, on Christmas morning, the Who's wake up and celebrate Christmas anyway. And the Grinch standing out in the snow, wonders how, oh how, could it be so? Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas perhaps means a little bit more. And so the Grinch discovers that the true meaning of Christmas is togetherness and generosity and happiness. You see, that's Dr. Seuss's vision of the true meaning of Christmas. But that's not the true meaning of Christmas. We Christians get much closer with some of our carols, like away in a manger. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. Jesus, the baby, sleeps, and the stars above shine down on him. And while he is laying in a manger, a a feeding trough for animals, the animals stand nearby wondering why there's a baby on their plate. But Jesus doesn't make any noise because he's such a good baby. (laughs) Now, we're going to sing Away in a Manger probably at some point this Christmas. And when we do so, I'm all for it. It's sweet. It's beautiful. I'm all for sweet and beautiful. And that begins to help us to understand the true meaning of Christmas. We're much closer now. But there's still something more. And so this Christmas, we're going to turn to John chapter 3, verse 16, because John chapter 3, verse 16 helps us to get much closer to the heart, to the true meaning of Christmas. 
And we begin today in our exploration of John 3.16 with the first few words, for God so loved the world. Because in these words, Jesus is inviting us. He is calling us to let God out of the boxes that we place him in in our lives. He's calling us to understand what the world really is around us. And he is telling us something about the deep nature of godly love. For God so loved the world. And we begin by trying to understand more what Jesus meant when he said, God, we need a bigger concept of God. It turns out we need a robust concept of God. We need a robust concept of God. And every Christmas, we need to remind ourselves that God is our imminent friend. Imminent meaning close. God is our imminent close friend. That is to say that every Christmas we need a reminder that in Jesus Christ, God has come to be near us, to be with us. God is for us. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, we remember that the birth of Jesus happened to fulfill a prophecy from the Old Testament that said that the Messiah, the Christ to come, would be God with us. Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 read, all this, that is the birth of Jesus, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus fulfills that prophecy. He is Emmanuel, God with us. God come to be with us. God on our side. In John chapter 15, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, not only am I with you, but I am your friend and I call you now friends. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. But as we continue to study the gospel according to John and the balance of the New Testament, we discover not only is God the Son our friend, but God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, are our friends. And we must remember that God is not distant from us. God is not remote and uninterested in us. God is with us. He is our imminent friend. At the same time, we need a reminder that God is the Almighty King. Psalm 103 puts it so bluntly. It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God is our almighty king. And before you say, well, Jesus is not king. Jesus is friend. God the Father is king. We discover in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, the king and Lord is Jesus' true nature, we read a description of Jesus in Revelation 19.16 that says, On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. This means his true name, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's Jesus' true nature. And in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, we discover that 
that God is asserting his kingship over all of the world. In the end, we read that the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so God, who is our eminent friend, is also our almighty king. And not only is God our almighty king, but we know also that God is a righteous judge. Psalm 50 verses 3 and 4 remind us of what we read throughout the pages of the Old Testament, that God is righteous and he is judge. Psalm 50 verses 3 and 4 says, our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. And so we know that God in the Old Testament is portrayed to us as a righteous judge, but sometimes we forget that God of the New Testament is a righteous judge as well. In fact, at the end, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, as, as history is ending, as, as creation is dissolving away, we discover that God, seated on a throne, is still our judge. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 says, this is John writing, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And it's then that God judges all, determining our eternal fate. And so God is our almighty king and our righteous judge, and we cannot forget that. And in addition, we remember that God is the transcendent power, transcendent. He is above all. He's power beyond anything we understand in any other context. We read in Genesis chapter 1 that in the beginning, God creates by a word. He just speaks and all creation comes to be. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, we read, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God speaks and creates in Exodus chapter 19, verses 18 and 19, we discover God appearing to his servant Moses. Moses wants to know God more, and, and he leads the people of Israel to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God comes down to speak to his people, and we find what the presence of God looks like. And we read, now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The presence of God is wrapped in, in fire and smoke and thunder and lightning because God is transcendent power. Now, in the end, we discover that God who spoke in the beginning is God who speaks in the end. In the beginning, God spoke and creation came into being. And in the end, we discover that God speaks and his enemies are utterly defeated. In Revelation chapter 19, the forces of evil are arrayed against Jesus, 
portrayed as being on a white horse and as a king leading the forces, the armies of heaven, the armies of evil versus the armies of heaven arrayed and aligned against one another. A mighty battle is about to take place. But we discover that the Son of God is portrayed as having a sword coming from his mouth. And that sword is the word of God. And it is by that sword, by that word of God, that the battle is won. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 21, we read, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. In other words, Jesus spoke a word. The battle looked like it's about to happen. The battle looked like it's about to be close. But when the battle actually begins, the Son of God speaks and the battle is over. There is no war. Because God, as it turns out, is a transcendent power. He is power above all things. And so we need a more robust concept of God. Because you see, we tend to put God in boxes in our minds. We tend to put God in a box that says, God, you could never be with me and you could never care for me. And yet we discover that God is our imminent friend. We put God in a box that says, I will be in charge of my life, not you. And yet we discover that God is the almighty king. We put God in a box and say, I will make the rules for my life, not you. And I will be judged by those rules. Only to discover that God is a righteous judge. We put God in the box that says, you... You're like a nice stuffed animal, God. I will take you out of this box and I will pet you and I will love you and I will keep you and then when I'm done with you, I will put you back in that box. And yet we discover that God is the transcendent power. And that is what Jesus meant when he said, for God so loved the world. We need a robust concept of God. We also need a realistic understanding of the world. We need a realistic understanding of the world. You see, the world, as we encounter it in the New Testament, in some ways is simply the place that is made by God. God made the world, the the cosmos, everything in it in the beginning. And not only that, we discover in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, that when God made the world, he made it good. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we read, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. God made the world and declared the world good. And yet we discover that this world that God made did not even recognize its creator when its creator came into it in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 10, we read, He, that is Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world was made by God declared good, but the world does not recognize its creator. In some ways, the world is just the place that we live now. It's the place where we, quite frankly, do our lives. This is where we live. 
And yet we discover that while the world is the place where we dwell or live, it is not our true home once we become followers of Jesus. You see, in John chapter 17, verse 14, Jesus says this, I have given them, that is, disciples of Jesus, your word, he's now speaking to the Father, and the world, Jesus says to the Father, has hated them, that's us, the disciples of Jesus, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so when we become disciples of Jesus, we learn that This world may be the place where we live, but it is not our true home. Our true home is in the kingdom of God. And this world then, while it is the place we dwell, is just our temporary residence. So the world is made by God. It is the place we dwell temporarily. And we dwell temporarily in this world because this world has come to be filled with evil. The world is filled with evil because this is the place where sin started. This is the place where sin has been committed, and this is the place that is impacted to every corner by the reality of sin and evil. And so 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 tells us that the entire place has been affected by it. 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It is now in the grip and under the rule of Satan. And so James chapter 4, verse 4 says that we are not allowed to cling to this world and love the world in the sense of wanting more of it. James 4, 4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Because while God made the world... And while we dwell in it, the world is filled with and impacted by evil. Now, in addition to that, we discover that the world is actually in open rebellion against God. In John chapter 3, verse 19, we read, this is just a few verses after John 3, 16. It says, and this is the judgment, that light, that is Christ, has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so the world is not just filled with evil, but it's given over to evil. It is under the reign of the evil one. And in John chapter 15, we discover it it goes even deeper than that, because in talking to his disciples, Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Do you grasp that? Jesus is saying, this world that I made, this world where you live, this world filled with evil and touched by evil under the reign of the evil one, hates me and is in open rebellion against me. And so we need a realistic understanding of the world. Yes, the world is made by God, and it is a good place created by God. Yes, the world is the place where we live but it's our temporary address. And this world where we live that is created by God is touched by evil under the rule of of the devil and in open rebellion against God. And so when Jesus says, for God so loved the world, that's what he means. 
we need a more realistic understanding of the world. Because how would a God who is almighty king, righteous judge, and transcendent power respond to a world he made that is filled and touched by evil and in open rebellion against him? Well, it turns out we need also a reliable picture of God's love. We need a reliable picture of God's love. Because we discover that godly love, particular kind of love, is God's nature. God declares his name in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, and when he does, we discover that love is a part of his name. God says, here's who I am, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love, godly love, it is a part of God's very name. And then in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we discover that God is godly love. It says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And so godly love, not a sentimental kind of love, not a romantic love, not a family love, not a friendship attachment, but godly love is God's very nature. Now we discover that Godly love is not only God's nature, but it is directed first at Christ. Godly love is directed first at Christ. And you think, well, wait a minute, isn't godly love directed first at me? It turns out that I am loved because God the Father loves Jesus Christ. We know that God the Father loves Jesus Christ because upon his baptism, when Jesus came up out of the water after being baptized, the Gospels tell us that the heavens opened and a voice came from the Father. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, we hear what that voice said. God the Father said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus is the beloved son of the Father. God the Father loves his son. And it turns out that God the Father loves us not because of any inherent value that we have, not because of anything good that we've done, but simply because we belong to Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, Paul explains this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before God the Father. In love, the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that is Jesus Christ. And so God loves us because he loves the Son, and we belong to the Son. 
And that means that godly love is something that can't change. God has loved the Son since before the foundation of the world, and he loves us because we are in Christ, and that love will never change. We are secure. Godly love starts with God's own love for Christ, and it takes the shape of God giving himself. We discover what godly love looks like in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, where John writes, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And then what does it mean that he has loved us? Look at what he says next. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What does love look like? It looks like God sending his son to die on the cross in order to pay the price for our sins. In fact, as we continue studying John chapter 3, verse 16, what we're going to find is that what comes after for God so loved the world is that he gave his only son. That's what love looks like. Love looks like God giving himself, particularly giving his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross to pay the price for our sin. That's what godly love looks like. And we need a reliable picture of God's love. God's love is not some sentimental feeling toward us. It's not romantic love. It's not family love. It's not friendship love. It is godly love. It is a choice for Jesus Christ that will not be changed. And it is the act of sacrifice by God for us. And so when Jesus says, for God so loved the world, that's what he means. For God so loved the world. We need a reliable picture of what godly love looks like. And as we get that reliable picture of godly love, we're able to back up now and we are able to begin to understand what it is that, that God does toward the world. Because as we back up and think about this question, there's an important thing for us to do, and that is grasp the dangerous drama behind the silent night. Grasp the dangerous drama behind the silent night. You see, as we think about Christmas, we have a beautiful, beautiful picture in mind. Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem to register for the census so that they could pay their taxes. And while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Meanwhile, outside of Bethlehem, shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night when, lo, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and a multitude of the heavenly host appeared singing, glory to God and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. When the angels went away, the shepherds rushed into Bethlehem to see the things that the angels had told them about. And in Bethlehem, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And having seen what they came to see, they left and they returned to the fields, praising God and giving glory to God. And Mary treasured these things up in her heart. Beautiful, peaceful 
silent. But there's still something more. To understand that something more that Jesus is talking about in John 3.16, it helps to know and understand the lives of Hosea and Gomer from the Old Testament. Hosea is a prophet located in the, in, the, in the pages of the Old Testament, deep inside of a section we call the minor, that is the shorter prophets. And in the minor prophets in the book of Hosea, we read that God sent the prophet Hosea to do a strange thing. He told Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. And so Hosea went and he found Gomer and he married her and brought her into his home. And, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and then a daughter, and then a second son. But Gomer was in the grip of her old life. And she couldn't stay with Hosea forever. She returned to her former life, and as a result, she ended up becoming a slave to someone else. God told Hosea to go and bring Gomer back. But to get Gomer back meant that Hosea would have to go and buy his unfaithful wife out of slavery. Now, the book of Hosea and the experience of Hosea and Gomer is a deep and rich part of the Old Testament, and it tells us it's a message to Israel. It's a deep and important message to us. But in that moment when God tells Hosea to go and buy back Gomer, what is Hosea going to do? Now we're ready to understand the dangerous drama behind the silent night. For just a moment, put yourself in Hosea's position. If you were Hosea and Gomer were your wife, how would you feel? And what would you do? And if you can put yourself in that position, then you can begin to understand the position God was in at Christmas. God, our imminent friend, the almighty king, the righteous judge, the transcendent power, was coming to a world he created that we destroyed. A world now filled with evil, filled with the effects of evil, under the reign of his enemy, in open rebellion against him. And in understanding that moment, we begin to grasp the 
the dangerous drama behind the silent night. Because as the people of Bethlehem and as the fields outside of Bethlehem lay silent that night, if they understood the moment that they faced, it would have been the silence of utter fear, wondering what would happen when the almighty king, righteous judge, and transcendent power burst forth with the armies of heaven to claim the world he had created, the people who belonged to him, and still the rebellion of that world. That's the dangerous drama behind the silent night. What would God do? Birth of Jesus Christ was God's surprising response. Jesus came as our imminent friend. And the armies of heaven burst into the sky not to fight, but to celebrate. Who would imagine that that's how the Almighty King, the righteous judge, and the transcendent power would come to us? For God so loved the world. And now we begin to understand the true meaning of Christmas. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.